Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, when Stu and I were at Synod, he leaned across the table and he said, Sandy, in our sermon series on 1 Peter, chapter 3 is coming up, and I was wondering, you know, I must confess that there have been many times during my preparation of this sermon that I wished I'd taken a leaf out of Lyndon's book, who told us that when Stu asked him to preach in the 1 Peter series, he respectfully declined. You know, there's no getting away from the fact that this is a tricky passage. You know, it's not an easy uh, passage to hear. It sounds foreign to our 21st century ears. But you know, one of the reasons that we formed this new diocese was because of a belief that we can't simply pick and choose which bits of scripture we accept and which ones we don't. So I believe we must do our best to engage with this passage. You know, in this issue, as with any other, we need to learn to bow our wills to the teaching of Scripture as we come under the authority of the Holy Spirit. So I pray that's what we are able to do this morning. Now, some of you might think that you can go to sleep for the next 20 minutes or so because this passage addresses husbands and wives, and you're neither. But please, bear with me, because I think as we read this and go through it and unpack it, we'll find that Peter has something really important to say to all of us, uh, not just those who are married. Now, of course, as we know, it's always important to put any passage of Scripture into its wider context. So let's begin by recapping where we've got to in our series in 1 Peter. So Peter began his letter by reminding us in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, of the great hope that we have as Christians. He says this, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So a new hope. Then later in that chapter, he reminds us that we're called to live holy lives. And why? Well, we're called to live holy lives because God is holy. And then in chapter 2, verse 9, he reminds us of who we are. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's special possession. And then in the light of all this, he goes on in chapter 2, verse 12 to say, we should live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and glorify God. And then he goes on in verse 16. He says, although you are now free people, you mustn't use your freedom as a cover for evil. So in those first two chapters, Peter has discussed the theology, you know, who we are, who God is, what we have in him. But he doesn't stop there. He basically is saying that orthodoxy must be accompanied by orthopraxy, which simply means right belief must result in right behavior. So that's what he now is going on to look at in the rest of this book. He's saying, having understood who you are, having understood what hope you have, having understood about living holy lives, how does that work out? What does it look like? What does your belief mean to your practice? 
So the idea that right belief must result in right practice is not new. Right? It's not a new thing in the New Testament. It was present in the Old Testament. You know, in the Old Testament, God gave the law to the Israelites. And when he had told them who he was, and he had told them who they were, he then told them about how they should behave in relation to the people around them, especially the weak and the vulnerable. And so it was true under the Old Covenant, and it's true under the New Covenant. So over the last two weeks, we've begun to unpack and look at how Peter sees this theology working out. And two weeks ago, we looked at how uh, it worked out in one of the major areas of social interaction, our behavior in society, about being um, submissive to the emperor, the king, those in authority. And then last week, we looked at slaves and masters. Now, you know, we don't have slaves and masters. I think we can think about that as Peter looking at how this works out in our work relationships with our boss, with our co-workers. But now in chapter 3, he turns his attention to the home. So he's looking at relationships in the home in the first eight verses. And then he extends that out in verses 8 to 12 to everybody in the church. Now, if you've been here over the last two weeks, you'll know that the word that is continually repeated in these instructions is submit. Now, it's a word that we find difficult. You know, none of us like to think of having to submit to the will of someone else. But Stu said a few weeks ago, and I think this is really important, that we need to learn submission because submission is to learn the way of Christ. So let's look at this uh, passage then, chapter 3, verses 1 to 8 particularly. The passage starts with, wives in the same way, you know, which should beg the question, in the same way as what? Well, it could be that he's reverting to the discussion about the way that people should behave in society or the way they should behave in the workplace. But I think he's also drawing our attention back to chapter 2, verses 21 to 25 where he says you are called to behave as Christ behaved. Christ sets you an example. When unjustly accused, he did not retaliate, but he submitted to the way, will of the Father. You know, we read that in Philippians 2. Jesus was obedient even to death. So if the life of Christ was a life lived and a death died in submission then surely the life of God in us should look like a life of submission. So to learn submission is to learn the way of Christ. But this passage has caused a lot of discussion and disagreement in the church over the years. You know, there have been many attempts to reinterpret it in perhaps a more palatable way. Sometimes it's simply been dismissed as culturally irrelevant in fact, as I was preparing this sermon, some research, I don't know if you saw it, it was publicized on the TV, but some research came out of the University of Otago, which reported that as many as 60% of women in Samoa are abused by their husbands. But the researcher laid the blame firmly on the church, and in particular, it's teaching on this passage and other passages um, similar to it in Ephesians and Colossians. I think perhaps what was the problem is that they weren't teaching the whole passage. But anyway, but th 
so I think the first thing we need to get clear is what this passage is not saying, what it's not about. You know, this passage is not about gender roles. You know, it's not about who puts out the rubbish, who makes the meals, who takes care of the children, or even who's the major breadwinner. That's not what it's about. As we've seen before in previous weeks, the Greek word for submit, when it's used in a secular sense, as it is here rather than in a military sense, can be translated as to cooperate or to voluntarily yield. Now keep that thought in your head, to voluntarily yield. Simply to put the needs of others first. Now again, submit does not mean obey. It doesn't mean that wives are inferior or less important than their husbands. In fact, in verse 8, Peter reminds husbands that their wives are co-heirs with them of the grace of life, on an equal footing as regards salvation. Neither does it mean, sadly, men, sorry, neither does it mean that the wife must agree with everything that her husband says or does, or that she shouldn't try to get her husband to change his mind if she thinks he's wrong. You know, it's not a requirement to leave your brains at the altar when you get married. And it doesn't mean putting the husband's will before that of the wife. So let me say that again. It's not about unconditional obedience. And I think that's maybe where the problem, if we believe the research, has come in the teaching in Samar. It's not about unconditional obedience. Wives are called to submit out of choice. Women, it's our divine calling to voluntarily yield in love. Now, I know that's countercultural, but Stu reminded us a few weeks ago that's exactly what we're called to be. Peter tells us we're resident aliens. You know, we are not part of this culture. But it was countercultural too when Peter wrote it. I think we sometimes fail to understand that. It's not just countercultural now, it was countercultural then. You know, in the first century Greco-Roman world, a wife had to submit to her husband as a cultural norm. She had no choice. But what Peter is talking about here is a completely different kind of submission. You know, in the ancient world, submission meant that the husband effectively owned his wife. She was dominated by him, and she submitted out of fear. Submission that Peter is talking about is a submission of free choice. In fact, in Ephesians, Paul says that submission is the final mark of a spirit-filled life. Peter addresses these Christian women in Asia Minor, and he's urging them to be submissive to their mostly unsaved husbands. Why? Because he's saying right belief should result in right practice, and right practice is evangelistic. He says your virtuous behavior and lifestyle might be persuasive and win your unbelieving husbands. You know, they had been unpersuaded by the preaching of the word, but they may be won to the Christian faith because of their godly be- the godly behavior of their wives. Peter then goes on to tell the Christian wives that they shouldn't focus on their outward appearance. Um, in the Old Testament, or in, in, in Bible times, a woman's worth was largely determined by how she looked and how she appealed to men. You know, a beautiful woman was worth more than a plain woman. She brought more in terms of dowry. But Peter says, instead of being concerned with your appearance, focus on your character, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. 
Peter then illustrates what this submission in wives looks like by citing Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought, why out of all the women in the Old Testament does Peter choose Sarah? Now, I've got no particular um, uh, theological reason for what I'm going to say next, but I think it might be because she was married to a difficult man. You know, if Sarah could be submissive to Abraham, you know, he was a difficult man. Imagine what it must have been like to be married to a man who came home one day and said to you, we're going to move. God's told us to pack up. And you reply, where are we going? And he says, I've no idea. We're just going. You know, I don't think Jen would have been too happy if James had said, well, we're going, but I don't know where. At least he could say where. Um, you know, it was a great act of submission and courage for Sarah to leave her, her family, her clan, and accompany her husband on a difficult and dangerous journey into the unknown. Or consider being married to a man who tells you to pretend you're his sister rather than his wife in order to protect his own skin. Or to a man who tells you that he's going to take your only son and sacrifice him. You know, it wasn't easy. So how could Sarah, a woman of strong will, remain faithful to her difficult husband? She stood beside him despite all of his bad decisions and choices. And I think Sarah was fearless because she trusted in God. And that when she heeded Abraham's request, she wasn't trusting in her husband, but she was trusting in her God to take care of the situation. She trusted in her God rather than in the character of her husband. I think there's a lesson there for those of us who are wives. You know, but let's be clear. There are many examples in Scripture of holy women, the Old Testament women, who were brave and bold. They took initiative within their patriarchal society to get jobs done that needed doing. You know, the messengers of God often showed up to them and gave them divine revelation without the presence of their husbands or other male guardians. These holy women even disobeyed their husbands when necessary, which when you think about it in the time that the, of the setting was unusual. So I think I want to say that the characteristics of bravery, courage, confidence and initiative are not incompatible with the clothing of reverence, purity gentleness and peace. You know, women, we can have a humble and submissive attitude and still use our intelligence, our influence and our abilities. So I believe that what Peter is saying here is that God's calling to women is to voluntarily yield in love to their husbands. Peter then turns his attention in verse 8 to husbands. Now, what he says to them was equally countercultural. In a Greek text surviving from about 50 BC, the writer says, We have mistresses for pleasure, concubines for the sexual service of our bodies, and wives to bear us legitimate children and be the guardians of our households. That was the position of a wife, and that was the attitude of men to their wives. Paul, in Ephesians, in a similar passage, says, Husbands, you are to love your wives, not as a reward for their submission, but as Christ loved you and gave himself for you when you were still in your sin. Peter calls husbands to be considerate as they live with their wives. 
What does that word mean? What does considerate mean? Well, apparently, in the context it's used here, it means according to knowledge. Live with your wives according to knowledge. Husbands, he says, you need to know your wife. You've got to take time to get to know her. What she likes, what she dislikes, how she ticks. There's no point trying to live with your wife and expect her to submissively yield to you in love if you're not treating her with the consideration that you have gained through your knowledge of her. Peter then refers to the wife as the weaker vessel. Now, I don't think he's just referring to physical strength here. I think what Peter is acknowledging is that a, a wife who has willingly submitted to her husband is in a very vulnerable position if the husband abuses his role. So she's a weaker vessel. So husbands, be careful. Husbands are to honor their, lives, their wives with their time, their strength, their money, etc., and to exalt her in the eyes of others. Another thing I want to point out is that I don't think there's anything in these two sets of instructions that links them together. Women are called to submit to their husbands, regardless of the love of their husbands. And husbands are called to love and to be considerate towards their wives, regardless of the submission of their wives. They're two separate sets of instructions. Peter then um, extends this teaching um, in verses 8 to 12 to say that this mutual submission, this mutual respect, is to permeate the whole church, the whole family of God, all of us at Hope Church. We're called to be mutually submissive and respectful to one another. Now, I said at the beginning that there seems to be a universal principle underlying all of this teaching, and I think it's one that we quite frequently neglect. Have another look at verse 7. Why must husbands treat their wives well? Well, it says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And again in verse 12, it says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. James, in James 5.20, says that the prayers of a righteous person are powerful in their effect. God, in these verses, is, sorry, God, these verses say, is attentive to the prayers of the righteous, which I think surely means that he's not attentive to the prayers of the unrighteous. In fact, that's what we read in Psalm 66.18. It says, if I had cherished sin in my heart the Lord would not have listened. When I visit Graham, we often in the afternoon watch the four o'clock news bulletin on the TV. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched daytime TV, but the adverts drive you insane. I mean, they're the same every day, and they're always for funeral cover or for ladders that you can have in 38 different positions. You know, so we've developed the habit that when the adverts come on, we hit the mute button on the remote. And I think that's what these passages is saying. It's saying God sometimes hits the mute button on our prayers. I think that the story of Jonah in the Old Testament illustrates this principle. 
We probably all know the story of Jonah. Jonah was God's man. You know, when Jonah spoke, people listened and lives were changed. God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, but as we know, Jonah decided he didn't want to go to Nineveh, didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. He decided to flee from the Lord's presence and go to Tarshish. So he gets on a boat and a storm breaks out. The pagan captain of the ship goes to Jonah, he knows he's God's man, he goes to Jonah and he says, call on your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. You know, they knew that Jonah worshipped the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land. Now, what an evangelistic opportunity for Jonah. The opportunity to call on his God and have God demonstrate his power to these heathens. But Jonah couldn't do it. He knew that he couldn't ask God to save them because he knew he was fleeing from God. He knew he was in a place of disobedience. You know, he was not in a place where his prayers would be heard. God would hit the mute button. What a terrible situation to be in. You know, it wasn't until Jonah confessed his sin from the belly of the fish that God could hear his prayer and rescue him. You know, Peter's already told us in this passage that we are a kingdom of priests. But just as in the Old Testament, the priest had to wash his hands and feet as a symbolic cleansing before he could enter the tent of meeting or come before God, we also need to have clean hands when we come before God. You know, there's no effective praying without right living. Let's be clear, though, I'm not saying that God doesn't hear the prayers of sinners, not at all. Um, and I'm not saying that we have to be perfect to come to God. But if we continue knowingly in our sin, God will not hear us. God speaking to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 1 says this, When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Why not? The answer comes, your hands are full of blood. Wash, make yourselves clean, take the evil deeds out of my sight, stop doing wrong, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Start acting correctly. There's no effective prayer, God says, without right living. You know, and it's not just an Old Testament principle. Jesus says exactly the same thing in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He says, if you come to the altar with your gift and then realize that you've got something against your brother or sister, you need to go and put that right before you come to God. There's no effective praying without right living. I think that might be why Paul, but both Titus and Timothy are so clear on the characteristics necessary to be in church leadership. You know, what could be more devastating for a church than to have leaders whose prayers cannot be heard by God. So in summary, I think that this passage teaches us that right belief must be accompanied by right living, by right relationships between husbands and wives. And in turn, right living means that God will hear our prayer. 
Um, in closing, one of the early church fathers called Tertullian, writing in around 200 AD, said the following of Christian marriage. He's writing uh, a letter to his wife, and this is what he says. What a union of two believers, one hope, one vow, one discipline, and one worship. That we are brother and sister, two fellow servants, one spirit, one flesh. We pray together, fast together, instruct, exhort, and support each other. What a lovely picture of Christian marriage. Peter's message to us is this, people of Hope Church, submit to one another, voluntarily yield in love. If we do that, I think we'll then be able to extend Tertullian's words to us as a church and say this, what a union of true believers, one hope, one discipline, one worship. Brothers and sisters, fellow servants, praying together, fasting together, instructing and exhorting and supporting each other as we voluntarily yield to each other in love.